Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Hello, I'm Mike Kelber, the coordinator for online course development at Legal One, and welcome to today's Legal One podcast. Today's episode is part of a 12-part series highlighting major United States and New Jersey Supreme Court decisions, why they are relevant today, and how the law has evolved since that decision. Today, we're discussing student search and seizure rights in light of a major United States Supreme Court decision, New Jersey versus TLO. TLO is the seminal case on student search and seizure nationally. Any matter, any case involving student search and seizure, regardless of the state from which it emanates, begins with a discussion of TLO. Today, I'm fortunate to have with me our special guest, Rob Achera, the Director of Member and Board Services at the New Jersey PTA. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me. And New Jersey PTA is certainly grateful and so happy for this continued partnership with Legal One and NJPSA. Let's start with the facts of the case. We go back to March 7th, 1980. A teacher in Piscataway High School discovers a 14-year-old TLO, that's the student's initials, and another student smoking in the girl's restroom. Now, the school regulations forbade smoking in that area. The teacher took the students to the principal's office where they met with the assistant vice principal. Now, the assistant vice principal asked the girls if they had been smoking. Now, TLO's companion said, yes, I was smoking in the girl's room. She was assigned to a three-day smoking clinic. That was the response from the administration for someone smoking in that situation. Now, TLO said, I wasn't smoking in the restroom, and I don't smoke at all. With that, the assistant vice principal asked her to come into his office, demanded to see her purse, opened up her purse, and found right there a pack of Marlboros. He picked up the cigarettes and said, you lied to me. As he reached into the purse, he noticed the package of rolling papers. From his high school administrator experience at that time, that meant that marijuana was probably involved. Suspecting drug use, he searched the purse more thoroughly and found a small amount of marijuana, a pipe, a number of empty plastic bags, a substantial quantity of money in $1 bills, an index card reading, people who owe me money, and that was followed by a list of names and amounts of $1.50 or $1 and two letters, one from TLO to another student and a return letter, both containing language that clearly indicated drug dealing by TLO. The purse also contained $40, most of it in $1 bills. The assistant vice principal notified TLO's mother and the police and turned the evidence over to the police. At the request of the police, TLO's mother took her daughter to police headquarters, where TLO confessed that she had been selling marijuana at the high school. On the basis of the confession and the evidence seized by the assistant vice principal, the state brought delinquency charges against TLO 
in what was then known as the Juvenile and Domestic Relations Court of Middlesex County. The charge against TLO was possession of marijuana with the intent to distribute. As that case proceeded, TLO's attorney contended that the search violated her Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable search and seizure and moved to suppress the evidence found in her purse as well as her confession, which she argued was tainted by the allegedly unlawful search. The term you'll hear or the phrase you'll hear is fruit from the poisonous tree. If the search isn't good, then you can't use the evidence. Well, the juvenile court denied that motion to suppress and moved on. They concluded that the Fourth Amendment did apply the searches carried out by school officials, but some very good language from that decision from the juvenile court said, and I'm quoting from that, a school official may properly conduct a search of a student's person if the school official has a reasonable suspicion that a crime has been or is in the process of being committed or reasonable cause to believe that the search is necessary to maintain school discipline or enforce school policies. As we'll see later down, this is sort of a spoiler alert, this language will be very similar to what we're going to see at the U.S. Supreme Court level as this plays out. So the juvenile court pretty much got a pretty good decision on this one. Applying the standard, the juvenile court looked at it and said, this search was a reasonable one. The initial decision to open the purse was justified by the assistant vice principal's well-founded suspicion that TLL had violated the rule forbidding smoking in the lavatory. Once the purse was open, evidence of marijuana violations was in plain view, and he was entitled to conduct a thorough search to determine the nature and extent of TLO's drug-related activities. Having denied the motion to suppress, the juvenile court found TLO to be a delinquent and sentenced her to one year's probation. That was the sentence that she received from the juvenile court. The case then worked its way through appeals, first in the appellate division of Superior Court, where a divided panel affirmed the case, then to the New Jersey Supreme Court, where on the issue of the search, the New Jersey Supreme Court reversed the appellate division and basically said the search was unreasonable because of its scope. And then ultimately, it made its way all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. So from a case that started in 1980, we now get to the U.S. Supreme Court. And what are the legal issues that are in dispute now? We get to the court, and what's the court looking at? Was the search of TLO's purse permissible under the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits unreasonable search and seizure? What is the legal standard that should be applied to determine if a search can take place? If the search is going to occur, how do we determine the scope of the search? I mean, how far do you go? And how do the rights of school officials compare to those of law enforcement when it comes to student searches? So the Supreme Court was wrestling with all of those issues. And with that, in a 1985 decision, here's what the Supreme Court came up with. So it took us five years to get there from the original search. First, the Fourth Amendment prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures applies to searches conducted by public school officials and is not limited only to searches carried out by law enforcement. Secondly, there's a balance that needs to be struck between school children's legitimate expectations of privacy and the school's equally legitimate need to maintain an environment in which learning can take place. That requires some easing of the restrictions to which searches by public authorities, like police officers, are ordinarily subject. So what is that? First of all, school officials need not obtain a warrant before searching a student who's under their authority. Police need a warrant. School officials do not. Moreover, school officials need not be subject to the requirement that searches be based on probable cause to believe that the subject of the search has violated or is violating the law. So the probable cause standard that applies to law enforcement does not apply to school officials. 
It is a lesser standard. And what is that standard? The legality of a search of a student by school officials is going to depend simply on the reasonableness under all of the circumstances of the search. Determining whether reasonableness of any search involves a determination of whether the search was one justified at the deception and whether as conducted, it was reasonably related in scope to the circumstances that justified the interference in the first place. Now that language, if you recall, was very similar to what the juvenile court said. Was it justified at its inception and was it reasonably conducted? Under ordinary circumstances, the Supreme Court held that a search of a student by a school official will be justified at its inception where there are reasonable grounds for suspecting that the search will turn up evidence that the student has violated or is violating either the law or the rules of the school. And such a search will be permissible in scope when the measures adopted are reasonably related to the objectives of the search and not excessively intrusive in light of the student's age and sex and the nature of the infraction. Reasonable suspicion means more than just a good hunch. You have to have something more to go forward on that. Just a point on the scope of the search as an example of what might be reasonable or not. Let's suppose that the question is whether or not a student stole another student's laptop or their tablet. Asking the student who is the accused in this case to empty their pockets would not seem to be a reasonable approach because most tablets and laptops are bigger than what you could put in your pocket. So you wouldn't find it there in the pocket. So that probably would not be a reasonable thing to ask. So under that standard, looking at the facts in TLO, the Supreme Court held that the search was not unreasonable for Fourth Amendment purposes. First, the initial search for cigarettes was reasonable. The report to the assistant vice principal that TLO had been smoking warranted a reasonable suspicion that she had cigarettes in her purse, and thus the search was justified even though the cigarettes were found would just constitute evidence of the violation of the no smoking rule. Secondly, the discovery of the rolling papers then gave rise to a reasonable suspicion that she was carrying marijuana as well as cigarettes in her purse. And this suspicion justified the further exploration of her purse that turned up more evidence of drug dealing activities. So the search in this particular case was reasonable at its inception and reasonable in its scope. So since 1985, we have seen the search issues evolve. There was a companion case at the New Jersey Supreme Court level dealing with the search of a locker. So the New Jersey statute that was passed at that time indicates that a principal or other official designated by the Board of Ed can inspect lockers or other storage facilities as long as students are informed in writing at the beginning of the year that that search can occur. So what we see in schools today is that in the beginning of the school year, in the student handbook, and in addition, usually there's a document to be signed off on by the parent or the adult pupil to indicate that they have received that and they've read it and they've understand it. So now in New Jersey, we do have a statute that indicates that lockers that belong to the school are the property of the school and they may be searched without reasonable suspicion. Now you can also do it with reasonable suspicion if that comes up, but assuming people have signed off on the form that goes home at the beginning of the year, locker searches are permissible. We have a case in New Jersey where luggage was searched prior to a field trip to prevent contraband going on the trip. Under the facts of that case and the circumstances involved, and all of these are fact sensitive, that search was permissible for that school district to do. Strip searches are never permissible. There was a situation, oh gosh, maybe about 15 years ago where a school administrator did a strip search of students. The legislature enacted the law, no strip searches ever 
by school officials at any time for any reason, never. So no strip searches in the schools. Student vehicle on school grounds under a reasonable suspicion standard, that was upheld in a New Jersey case. Metal detectors, we have a case out of Pennsylvania, a case out of New York. Again, not unlike the locker situation, notice to the students that the metal detectors are being used and it's applied uniformly, more likely than not, even in New Jersey, because we don't have a specific case on point, but cases nationally, particularly Pennsylvania and New York, have upheld use of metal detectors. District-owned electronic devices, if a district owns it and they're giving it out and you have an acceptable use policy, not unlike the locker situation, a search of that would be okay so long as it's clearly spelled out within the acceptable use property. Personal electronic devices get a little more dicey, and that's one that school administrators, parents should be aware of. There's a cautionary tone here because we do have one U.S. Supreme Court case dealing with search of a cell phone, but it was in a criminal context, but it did acknowledge the heightened expectation of privacy that an individual has in what's in their cell phone. So it's not unlike a backpack or not unlike a wallet or a pocket or something like that. So reasonable suspicion becomes the standard, but there are some really complex issues here and that needs to be discussed more seriously, especially getting the board attorney involved. If school officials consult with law enforcement on a search, generally speaking, what's gonna happen is that that search is not gonna be held at a reasonable suspicion standard, but to the probable cause standard generally applicable to law enforcement. And that's particularly true, and this happens sometimes, if the law enforcement directs a school official to conduct the search. They say, well, I can't really do it, but you can do it, so you go ahead. If law enforcement directs the school official to conduct the search, probable cause standard, different standard than the reasonable suspicion typically coming under TLL. It's a best practice from an administrative position to have two school officials conduct the search at the same time. So we don't get into a he said, she said discussion. We have a witness there to view the search. So you've got two people looking at it, two administrators, and, and that provides a little more comfort level that everything's on the up and up. Important point, parents need not be present for the school official to conduct the search. That is not required under the law. Having said that, occasionally you'll find a school district policy that talks about bringing the parents in, but legally, the parents do not need to be present for the school official to conduct a search. And the last one before we talk to Rob, the recent marijuana legislation has us all taking a good review at that, the reduction in penalty for students, the decriminalization of items, the limitations on what police can do when they confront students off school grounds, they're in possession or using marijuana or now even alcohol. It's created a number of questions that everybody's taking a look at right now, but I think the key to this is going to be, we still have a school rule, and the school rule is still going to say no possession, no use of marijuana or alcohol on school grounds, and so those being part of the Code of Student Conduct still think we have a potential violation of the Codes of Conduct, and that will retain, in all likelihood, our reasonable suspicion standard, but stay tuned, because... It'll evolve and we'll see what the courts say when the first cases come down the pike. That concludes our overview of TLO and student school search standards and where we are today. So let's take this first one, Rob. So a school administrator calls a parent and explains that their child has been searched. What would be some of the questions that a parent would want to have answered by the school administration? 
when going over this first question, I really threw down quite a bit. Uh, so I think the first and foremost, what they're going to ask is, what did they do? Immediately, they're going to think that something happened, that they did something, that something may have happened on social media or on the school grounds. So they're going to want to know what happened, and they're going to want to have someone that's calling them and talking to them that's going to have information and knowledge on the issue. Going back to what we just talked about, a lot of parents are probably going to ask, why weren't they called before the search happened? And obviously, we learned through the court case and being here today, why that necessarily may not be the case. Some school districts may have rules in place based on their Board of Education's approving things where the parents will be called first. But if that rule is not in place, as the law says, they don't need to be called and they don't need to be present. They're going to be asked, why were they searched? What was searched? Um, and then they're going to ask if it was legal. And obviously we see today through this, it is legal, but you know, the parents are going to ask, is this legal? Do I need to call a lawyer? Then they're going to want to know a little bit more detail. Who did it? Who else was searched? Obviously, these are things that probably can't be shared with them immediately, but it's going to be the first thing that comes to a lot of parents' minds. And then obviously it's going to go into, was anything found? Which probably wouldn't want to be shared over the phone, but they're going to ask what was found? What were they looking for? Were the police called? Did the police come? Where is And where is my child? And then I think a lot of parents are probably going to ask, were they upset? How did my student, how did it affect my student? So before they either get there or if they're at the police station, they're going to want to know what the situation is um, with their student's well-being at the time. What about a situation, and sometimes this happens, the child refuses to consent to the search. The principal asks to look in their backpack or their book bag or their purse or whatever it may be, and the student says no. How can parents and school officials work together in that circumstance? I think in a situation like that, the parent would obviously need to be called and need to be notified and will probably ask a lot of those questions that I was just talking about, but it would probably be best if they did come down to the school where you could have a meeting of the minds of some sort to really address it because I think a lot of times uh, students may be if you know something they know something is in their locker or even if they know nothing is in their locker they're going to be very scared and very hesitant you know us as adults I remember the first time I was pulled over for speeding a little bit or not putting my blinker on I was scared out of my mind to have the cop come up to me and me answer the questions um, so I can only imagine how scary and um, intimidating it might be if you know you're called down to the main office you're questioned about this um, and you sometimes would just want your parent there so a lot of times I think it's important that instead of pushing and pushing and scaring the student into it maybe it is a good time for a parent or guardian to be called to be brought in to work through the situation to what will end up being searching of the locker or whatever we're searching but sometimes having that third body there and, you know, the people that you live with and have grown up with may help the situation a little bit more. We may occasionally get circumstances where the parent has advised their child, I don't want you talking to the vice principal unless I'm there. And while there's not anything that actually compels or requires that the parent be there for the discussion or for the consent to the search, if that's where we where discussion is going, if the student says no and refuses to talk, it, it does put the school administrator in a difficult position to try to get to the bottom of the circumstances. So hopefully it's a circumstance dealing where the parents and school officials can work together to do what is in the best interest of the student and to get to the bottom of wherever the issues may be. One of the areas that we, over the last couple of years, certainly in the pre-COVID world, 
that we were seeing a high frequency of in the schools was the use of vapes and suspected student possession of vapes. Kids have a variety of ways in which they can conceal them. And Rob, do you think parents are aware of ways in which vapes can be concealed? And with that in mind, how can schools and parents work together to address that issue? This is definitely a question that we have been getting more and more frequently as the availability of vapes and smoking tools like that have become more and more available to so many underage individuals than they were even a few years ago. New Jersey PTA has made a vested interest in making sure that we're educating as many parents as we possibly can in this area. Uh, We know that we've been to many workshops and presentations where this has been presented and we have made sure that this is definitely presented at many of our leadership trainings and conventions that we have to ensure that parents are knowledgeable. But unfortunately, as we've seen at many presentations, things change day in and day out. There's new tools and ways to conceal these items that, you know, parents may not know about. And so every parent is very different in their knowledge. And even if you are the most educated on this or the most up with it, it may be some new tool that they're selling on Amazon or selling at the local store or down the street or that they're, they got from their friend that they're able to hide the vape. So it's very important in this situation that, you know, as the schools get new information, as the schools see things that are happening, that they share and they communicate with their parents as much as they possibly can to make sure that the parents are up and aware of the things that may be happening in that town. You know, we've seen from different presentations, town to town to town, different things are happening and different availabilities are there based on who's friends with who. Obviously, this has been a lot lower since COVID has happened, but once we're going back to school, hopefully in September with more normalcy than we've had in the last year, we're going to see an uptick in this, especially since they've been home. They may have been with older brothers and sisters that were at colleges that were able to teach them and inform them of new things that they can do and new ways to hide and conceal these items. So just like searching and anything else, it's really important that the school and the parents communicate when things like this happen and that we inform parents of ones that aren't even being searched. So they are up on the times and they know what needs to be looked for and what clues and what hints they could look for in searching for these things. The other piece that has become a big item well, everywhere, but also with respect to student searches, is that sometimes the information that justifies reasonable suspicion is based, at least in part, on information learned in social media. And social media is a challenge for a lot of school administrators, a lot of kids, a lot of parents. And how can school and parents work together to raise awareness of the potential impact of what students post online? And once again, just like with the vaping, social media has turned into this whole new monster that I couldn't even imagine how administrators and teachers and parents alike are able to keep up with all the different kinds of social medias. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I graduated in 2008, my Facebook page got started, I think when I was a junior. So in 2007, when it was beginning to become a thing, a popular thing for high school students to use. Now there's endless lists of these different social media and you know time and time again and this is one of the biggest things that parents I think are learning when their children become preteens and going into their teenage years they're trying to learn and keep up with not only their cell phones but the different social media accounts that they have 
And like, you know, concealing your jewel, concealing your social media has become so relevant and present in so many teenagers with being able to change the way the app looks on your phone or being able to, you know, having incognito mode on Google Chrome or a private mode on Internet Explorer, you can hide a lot of these things. So it's hard for the parents to be able to keep track and even more so when you're getting into the school and seeing the different things that could arise in an administrator's office when maybe another parent is calling into the school to say such and such, put this on social media about my child, I need it removed immediately. And it's hard. It must be hard because social media is something that may not have been done in the school, may have been done at home, and the school doesn't have as easy access to be able to search a student's social media as they would searching something physically in the school. So it's really important that, and this is something like with the Vaping New Jersey PTA is constantly ensuring that it's at all of our trainings, that parents are informed and students are informed of what social media and what it can do. Not only, you know, we always talk about how social media can haunt people down the road when they're looking for jobs or things that happening, but the social media bullying that's happening and things that could happen in their school and stories that happen in the school of what bullying, especially on social media, could lead to. So ensuring that parents are informed, students are informed, and giving the availability and the time for administrators who probably haven't had social media knowledge themselves get a little bit more knowledgeable about that to ensure that when things like this come up, they know what can happen and what could happen and where they could search to determine how these posts were happening, if they're relevant to what's happening in school, and to ensure that the well-being of every student is dealt with as soon as possible, because you never know how far things like this can go and how far the end could be in sight for some, unfortunately. One last question for me right now. Uh, do parents understand, do you think, and we talked a little bit about this in the overall overview, that under certain circumstances, student electronic devices, either district-issued or personal devices, may be subject to search? And how do you think schools and parents can work together to raise awareness of this? I think this is an issue that obviously in the time of COVID and now post-COVID and even pre-COVID, we had a lot of school districts that were moving to -to one-to-one technology and ensuring that each student had it. But at what level were they using it either in school or outside of school to just have it? Now, obviously, through COVID, getting even kindergartners' laptops was so vital and important to address the digital divide and to make sure that electronic devices are available so schoolwork can continue to happen. And I think now as we work past COVID, this is not going to be something that goes away. Now that a lot of the school districts have this technology, the technology is going to stay. And I think it's going to be one of those things where not only educating the students on what's okay to do, what's not okay to do. Like I said before, with, you know, we have these incognito levels and these areas of internet where, you know, could be blocked from history. But when we get onto the school networks or getting onto the school computers where teachers are able to see exactly what's happening in a classroom or, you know, the technology people in this school are able to go in and see the histories of people's accounts and they get alerts when certain sites are opening. What can happen and what will happen? Obviously, a lot of this is addressed in student handbooks, but a lot of times are the parents actually reading what is in that student handbook? What are they signing off on? A lot of times I remember in high school, it's if you don't send back your student handbook confirmation form, you can't go to the school dance. So, you know, it's like sign this real quick. No one's reading it. They're handing it in, making sure it's in so they can do all the great extracurricular activities. It's when something is to arise 
when the problems come up and people are like, well, where is that again? So I can read exactly what is happening. So in any of these cases, and you know, I keep saying the word communication, it's when the communication is happening and the education piece is there, not only from the school board or the school administration to the parents, but the other way around, that the parents are educating their students on what could happen and that the administration is educating their students on what could happen if you go on a bad site, if something is to happen, if you are to bully someone on social media. You know, a lot of times, a lot of these things are locked on these new school computers, so it's making it a little easier, but there's always ways to get around things like that, you know, with passwords where a teacher by accident may have shared the admin password with the student, and now they're able to get into these sites that they wouldn't normally get into. So it's an issue that I think in today's world, when we're in COVID and we're under such close watch because of things like that, but post-COVID definitely, as technology becomes even more and more prevalent and there for not only you know middle school, high school, but elementary school now, it's educating all areas to make sure that everyone knows what could happen and that everything is happening in a way that is fair to the privacy and the well-being of our students. With that, I'd like to thank Robert Chera from the New Jersey PTA for his insight and contribution to today's program. So Rob, thank you very much for that. Thank you so much for having me, and we look forward to the continued partnership and support from Legal One. For additional information, you can check the Legal One website at www.njpsa.org slash Legal One NJ. That's just one word, no spaces, L-E-G-A-L-O-N-E-N-J. That section will have more information with each episode of the podcast, or you could go to the NJPTA website, which is www.njpta.org. We encourage you to check out what we have to offer at Legal One for our courses, webinars, and workshops. And with that, this is Mike Kelber from Legal One signing off. Thank you for attending our podcast today. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.